under pressure. Dun, 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 dun. Nothing? Pressure. <laughs> Comment down. Okay. Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and send all those myths and bad advice off to the cleaners. Uh, I'm Adam Evermeskio. And I am Dave Darrington. And this time of year is typically when we like to let loose and do a little fun episode to close out the year and start off the new one. And after this year, we definitely <laughs> let loose a bit, don't we, yeah, Adam? We absolutely do. 2020 has been nuts. Uh, the, the understatement of the year. <laughs> so for this episode, bridging the end of 2020, beginning 2021, we are going to continue our tradition of asking what music and art can teach us about customer education. That's right, because last year we did the Radiohead episode, and that was an experiment mm -hmm. for us. And, and frankly, I was genuinely surprised to see the reaction we got to that episode. Uh, we, we were doing our our countdown of the top episodes from last year. And I believe that episode was actually number three in terms of listens. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very shocked with that as well. And it, what was fun with folks was, uh, what was fun was a lot of uh, our listeners were saying, Hey, this, this was the best one. And when we actually interviewed people, they were excited about it. <laughs> yeah. We ended up talking about <laughs> that episode on, on a couple of the, the interviews that we did afterwards. I know. So interesting, right? It felt like it was just going to be this little indulgent episode, like something for us, but, uh, Hey, I'm I'm really glad that it resonated, and I hope that this one will too. Totally, yeah. It was a it was the best both in terms of listeners and all that feedback. So, what what do we uh, where are we going to go from here? Well, I think this is a tradition that we should continue now in some form because uh, the experiment was a success. <laughs> um, and we might not always focus on musicians or bands. We're we're thinking about this and we're playing it by ear as we go. We we tossed around the idea this year of focusing on other forms of media like movies or video games and we might do mm -hmm. those in the future um but we'd love to hear from you if you liked this one if you want to hear us talk about something else uh what do you want to hear from next year we'd love to hear from our listeners totally this year as we prepared for this episode adam and i started thinking about what other interests we had in common one artist really clearly stood out to both of us was david bowie david bowie or bowie as some call him a really interesting artist because he represents so many different things to different people. And his career went through plenty of really distinct phases mm -hmm. over the decades that, that he was performing. <clears throat> so some might know him from his really iconic hits like Space Oddity or Let's Dance. Yeah, and others might recognize him more from his rock personas like, oh gosh, who can forget Ziggy Darts? Ziggy Stardust and The Thin White Duke, which frankly, you know, I hadn't heard that title before we started researching this and I thought I uh, knew well. The, the Return of the Thin White Duke, <laughs> Throwing Darts in Lover's Eyes. <laughs> or, hey, let's, let's put want, it you out want there. Some, you want some obscure work. ones? Yeah, go for it. Do you, do, you know, uh, do you know what album he, or no, here, let me, let me structure it this way. Do you know which character he played on the album Diamond Dogs? Oh gosh, no! Not have to I will. I'll, I'll Venmo you twenty dollars right now. Venmo me twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear it up in Google. I hear you. Seriously, <laughs> typing. Uh, the, the character's name was Halloween Jack. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a fun name. That was a fun name. What about his work in movies? Because um, the Man Who Fell to Earth was one, and, and mm -hmm. a lot of people know about Labyrinth. Yeah, and he, he ended up doing that stage show too, uh, kind of at the end of his life based on that same character from The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, Thomas Jerome Newton, and the, oh, what was the play called? It was, oh, it was called Lazarus. And then, you know, yeah, be, beyond the characters. There's a lot. There's a lot, right? And so those are just the characters. There's also those periods of his career where he wasn't necessarily playing a character, but he did the Berlin Trilogy, um, and he had those genre experiments in Blue-Eyed Soul, Industrial, Drum and Bass, and, and even Jazz in his last album. So, Dave, what's what's your favorite era of David Bowie's career? Uh, you know me; I get more into that um, the probably the like the outside era. Um, 
If I were to laser in and like look in Wikipedia, for example, I realize now what I was drawn to was that electronic period in around 92 to 98, where he got really weird and out there. Um, the whole outside album was very different from anything that you would have heard before. And I think we'll get into that later. Uh, it, you know, what's funny is how I got into Bowie when, you know, we were talking about, you know, like our interest and I discovered Bowie in college from a friend of mine who he, he made it his thing because I was a dual major in music and physics when I started. Um, he gave me this whirlwind tour of all the music that I didn't know coming out of a small rural Midwest town, you know, about an hour out of a decent sized big city. That's where I got my exposure. Mr. Mr. Nate Stammeyer took me through it all. It was great. What, yeah, what's your favorite era? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm basic. I, I got into him first from his early 70s glam stuff. Love uh, Ziggy Stardust mm-hmm. and um, Hunky Dory. And we're, we'll, we'll talk about some of those albums. But I think now, uh, now that I've, I've gone deeper into his work, my absolute favorite album is uh, station to station, which he recorded right before his Berlin trilogy. Um, and then maybe second place. I, I kind of love that whole Berlin trilogy and the album that came afterwards where uh, Dave, do you remember when he was dressing as a clown? I do not remember that. That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was doing this kind of like mime uh, character and it was right before he got he became a you know a huge pop success with Let's Dance and he was playing this uh, clown oh, named Pierrot. Um and the the album that he released uh, there's a fantastic song on there called Ashes to Ashes which is kind Ashes of a Ashes. spiritual yeah. sequel to Ground Control to Major Tom to Space Odyssey uh, Space Oddity Ashes to Ashes Funk yeah. to Funky we know, we know Major, Major Tom's a junkie. junkie. I love that. Strung that out on heaven. Yeah, we go on. <laughs> I was going to harmonize with you if you kept going. <laughs> I, I'm not that great of a singer, but I love this music. <laughs> yeah, so that stuff's all great. And, and you know, it's almost a cliche at this point that David Bowie was known for having so many memorable phases of his career and constantly reinventing himself. But when you try to tally all of them up, you realize just how, how true it is. Yeah, you, you know, one thing... Or I think one reason Bowie resonates with both of us, similar to Radiohead, is because, Adam, you and I love experimentation, right? We do? No, we, we do. do. <laughs> we yes, do. We, yes, we do. Maybe maybe that's part of our DNA. And, you know, this is someone who would constantly reinvent himself and be completely unafraid to try out new things, even if they weren't safe or on-brand for him, right? And we're not talking about the market, like... What's his character? So he, w- we're not going to cover his entire career in just one episode here, right? Uh, but we can pick out some key moments and l- let's explore his career to see what they teach us about customer education. Got to bring it home. I love it. Let's let's dive in. So just like on the Radiohead episode that we did last year, we'll pick three songs that are kind of emblematic of different points in his career and what they can teach us. And, and so the first song that we mm-hmm. wanted to choose is. Uh, changes from 1971's Hunky Dory. Yay. Uh, who could forget <laughs> that? Uh, that song is almost a cliche of Mr. Bowie's career, given how many changes he went through. And it was it was pretty prescient, was it not? Yeah, I, I think interesting in a way that he was able to kind of predict all the changes that he would go through. You know, in retrospect, it's easy to look back at a song like Changes and say, oh, this is a guy that's going to go through so many phases of his career. But Let's realize, you know, this is this is pretty early in his career, right? This is four years into releasing solo records. Um, sure. You know, how, how did he know? How did how, how did he uh, foretell this? But the fact is, he had already been through many changes. And, and I think the, the path that he took to get to this point in his career um, really informs the song. So this is kind of lesson number one. And, and I think the way that I would summarize this is what worked for them won't necessarily work for you. So we could do a, yeah. a quick, quick little history lesson. David Bowie started his career uh, not as a solo artist, but as a frontman for pop and R&B, uh, R&B act. So he wasn't even going by David Bowie or, or Bowie at the time. Uh, he was Davy Jones. Um, so he had, a, he had a band mm-hmm. called David Jones and the King Bees, the Manish Boys, the Lower Third. Um, and these were all attempts for him to break into the music scene. Now, obviously, Davy Jones was a name that was taken, so he eventually had to change it. 
but he was really trying to fit in at this point. Uh, during the mid-60s, this is what you did if you wanted to become a recording artist. You recorded covers of American R&B songs, or you wrote songs that sounded derivative of them. And this was the approach that all of those British invasion acts at the time took. Yeah, but, you know, that didn't really work out well for Bowie, right? It it didn't take advantage of the tremendous gifts that really made him unique as an artist. And I, let, let's... Let's bring it back to customer education, which is, again, the goal here. We're having fun, but we're relating it to our field. The first thing you want to know, or that your ex- your execs are asking you is, what is everybody else doing? You and I both had this it, Always. many times. Every time. It's, it, 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 it is kind of like a backhanded way to talk about, like, what's the value of you being here, Dave? And. I welcome that. It's necessary. Well, it's, what? I mean, it's, it's that. And it's also, you know, can we, can we shortcut anything about our own program by relying on yeah. industry benchmarks or, or peer analysis? Sure. It's, it's easy. And actually, I think it's not a bad practice to do. You know, what are the benchmarks for your program? Who should we model our program after? Um, and it's true. Sometimes you just need, and I've done this too. I've like, I've looked at how you build up a program from scratch in, in a general context, not specifically for customer education. When I was starting it, sometimes you need to just copy to break into a field and do it a few times to understand what you're doing. But it's like, learn, just learn like the rules Bowie, before you break the rules. Learn. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just like Bowie probably wouldn't have been successful if he started trying to be the Rolling Stones. You wouldn't build an iconic program by just copying other big ones that you like. You're going to discover what your own unique skills and passions are, and then you're going to use them to build better things. Yeah, I, I agree. So David Bowie was kind of able to, to strike out on his own and come up with his own identity and do things that were really not necessarily standard choices. So now yeah. that you've kind of defined your identity, this brings us to what I think is lesson two from this song, which which I've captured here as uh, turn and face the strange. It changes. It changes. <laughs> so again, as we said, changes was really early in his career, but he'd already gone through a lot of changes by, by that time. So just four years into being a solo artist, he'd already released four albums, which were all incredibly different in sound and tone. And so we'll do a little bit of um, Bowie discography here. He, his first self-titled album that he released, you know, David Bowie, 1967, is almost unrecognizable to current Bowie fans. It's full of these like music hall, <laughs> Anthony Newley type uh, numbers and all these over the top story songs. And if you want a real treat, listeners, go listen to a song called The Laughing Gnome from this time. It's not on the album. It's a, this is a deep cut. Um, it's basically just him listing all of the gnome puns he can think of. <laughs> I have listened to this, Adam. And I have to say, it's it is you're absolutely right. It's completely unrecognizable, and it's a little bit jarring when you think about it. And you go back and you're like, "Wow, this is this is not the Bowie I knew." No, absolutely not. <laughs> and he's using very um, very strange instrumentation, which he would go on to do later in his career. Like you you called it out to me earlier. There's there's an oboe in that song. Um, but if you if you think about it, like if you go to uh, the Ziggy Stardust album, he uses a bassoon and penny whistle solo. Uh, in, in that one too. So like he just found, he found a better way to contextualize some of those idiosyncrasies, uh, idiosyncrasies. Yeah. I think that's the word. Idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Yeah. So his next album, uh, which is now called space Odyssey, uh, space oddity at the time, I think it was David Bowie, 1969. It's folkier, but it's all, it also incorporates more sci-fi elements. Um, instead of the theatrical story songs, now he's writing these seven, eight, nine minute dystopian epics. Uh, this is the album that Space Oddity, a.k.a. Ground Control to Major Tom, is on. But there's a kind of a mini lesson mm-hmm. in here even about perseverance and market timing. The, the BBC would not play that song, uh, wouldn't release it as a single, until Apollo 11 crew had safely returned. And it didn't become wow. a hit in the U.S. until, wait for it, four years later. And now it's one of his most iconic songs, wow. but there's a very real chance that that song was not going to make it to, uh, to see the light of day. Yeah, if there had been a disaster, which clearly could have happened, then we wouldn't. We may never have heard it. Yeah, well, and and the other thing I think we'll come back to this is is that if that song, if he hadn't become a more popular artist in the U.S. over the the coming years, this song would be completely unheard of. It would be a novelty song from the U.K. that like three people would know about. So 
you know, moving forward from that, uh, his next album, The Man Who Sold the World, which again, yes, that's actually a David Bowie song. A lot of people don't know that. The Nirvana version is a cover. Um, it That leaned more heavily on a full band sound and even veered into the, the hard rock and blues rock sound. But none of these albums were particularly successful. So it's easy to look back and say how brilliant something like Space Oddity or The Man Who Sold the World is. But that's all hindsight, right? David Bowie had no way of knowing that these songs would become uh, chart hits or, or that uh, Space Oddity would you know, would chart in the U.S. four years <laughs> after its release, or that The Man Who Sold the World would become so popular as a Nirvana song that people wouldn't even know that David Bowie wrote the original. So wow. what did he do? Kind of what funny. did he do, Dave? I, you know, I, ju- I just wanted to say, just reflecting on this as you're talking through it, it's kind of funny because this is the kind of fame that we often see now in our era where imagine like a, a TV show that is on Netflix that nobody discovered until today. You know, it's this delayed gratification of, of content sometimes. So that's really interesting. Well, even even Changes itself wasn't heavily promoted at that time. So so what do you do? He turned and phrased the strange ch-ch-ch-changes. He kept changing up his sound. He kept experimenting to see what would work. And when he finally struck gold with his glam sound in Ziggy Stardust in 72, it completely recontextualized the songs and albums that even came before it. So let's talk number lesson number three here in this, which is success isn't instant. There's no overnight success. All right, so... In tech, we tend to talk a lot about overnight successes. The startup that came out of nowhere raised millions of dollars. You know, the company that disrupted an industry. In a way, we create narratives that are retroactively, that retroactively justify their own success. And we talk about them like they were fated to success from the start because they did succeed. So we glaze over all that hard work, all that extra existential crisis that everybody had had along the way. Yeah, and, and you've seen this written about, you know, tech companies writ large, right? This isn't this isn't a new insight that yeah. you and I are coming up with right now. This is a uh, this is something that happens to all of these, you know, quote unquote overnight successes. Well, the fact of the matter is, they weren't overnight successes. There was a long struggle before they actually became successful, and and success tends to kind of rewrite history in a way. I'm sure there were many critics in the '70s who talked about David Bowie this way, bursting onto the scene with an experimental mm-hmm. glam sound. Uh, but that's not really how it worked, and it ignores all the struggle that came before. If you think about how many bands he was in, how many sounds he tried out just to get to that moment of critical mass in the early 70s, all of those strange changes, you realize how much of the narrative around Bowie was shaped by the fact that he did succeed in the end. But arguably, there were more moments where his experiments failed or where he risked failure. If he hadn't kept experimenting, and if he had just tried to stick with one of those sounds that uh, that didn't succeed for him, we may not ever have heard of him. Yep, that's true. And and I guess if we were to wrap this back into a customer education context, this is what we've been experiencing too, that w- it, we haven't been overnight successes ourselves. You know, we have a podcast and such, but we do a lot of work. We're practitioners. We're actively trying to learn and explore and experiment as well. And I think we're making we're making progress. Well, yeah, and I mean, take take any of the customer education programs that you know and love today. I guarantee you they did not spring up overnight, and I guarantee you mm. that there was a tremendous amount of pain that it took to get them to the point where they are now. So if you are just starting out in customer education, or if you have a relatively new program or a small underfunded program, you know, we we know we like, we've seen this. We know your pain. Uh, you'll get there. You'll get there through experimentation and perseverance. Yeah, and that someday you'll be, you'll be reflecting upon this, thinking, "Wow, I, I, I should have had this all along. This is amazing." Absolutely. So, Dave, why don't we, uh, why don't we fast forward in time to the next mm-hmm. song that we're going to talk about? What are, what are we talking about next, Dave? Oh, you know, the the next song that's going to come up on everybody's mind is "Under Pressure." Dun, 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 dun. Nothing. Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Comment down. Okay. Yes. I'll, I'll do. Um, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll do some stylings. I'll do some stylings later. Some I just stylings. clipped out my microphone just on that one. Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
let's go let's let's reframe this a little bit let's talk about the song under pressure is the famous collaboration between bowie and queen it was recorded in 1981 These it just 10 it years in the future be, Yes, 10 years in the future. And this is one of those songs that's that's really iconic as well and just so much fun. So we've now moved forward. And like Adam said, 10 years that have taken him to the heights of glam stardom. He has a fertile period of ghostwriting as well for other artists like Mott and Hoople and then into Blue All Axel. the young dudes, <laughs> carry the news. That was Bowie. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Um but then there was a descent into some drug-fueled madness when he reportedly lived off a diet of, get this, peppers, milk, and cocaine. And finally... That's when on. he wrote Station to Station, Fine. my favorite my favorite album. He uh, does not remember recording it. I can only imagine. You know, and he, he finally, into what many consider his creative peak, in, in, and this is probably what you'll talk about again, you know, living in Berlin, releasing experimental albums uh, in collaboration with Brian Eno. He's a legendary producer. Yeah, absolutely. And and this legendary. is the period of his career where he's kind of sitting on the precipice, like like I said earlier, of, of mainstream pop stardom. Um, you know, I think he's he's working on Let's Dance at this point, mm-hmm. which is about to become one of the most commercially successful albums in his career. Uh, I think he's probably done dressing up as a clown by this point. Uh, but he, he still finds time to just, you know, casually pop into the studio with Queen and knock out this stone classic. Oh, my gosh. That had <laughs> to be amazing. I know. I know. I would, I would kill to be a, a fly on the wall for those recording sessions. But, uh, Dave, what, what, what can we learn from Russia? All right. Let's, let's get into lesson number one. And think about progress think about perfection for this one maybe we take a close look at a reading of the lyrics and see what like we can learn and i'm just going to read them and you I can, love when we do these meaningful close them. readings <laughs> okay get this get this folks okay this t- sounds terrible just like reading it out how would that sound <laughs> I like that sound in real life. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. When you do it like can, that, yeah, it's like, oh yeah, I get it. You know, just reading that, it's okay. Nonsense. But we're, we're we're kind of joking. Yeah, this is complete nonsense. There's no close reading to be done of this this lyric. But <laughs> the reason that we're here is that this song actually started out as a freeform jam between Bowie and Queen, and and surprisingly, uh, a lot of that improvisational tone is still present on the final track. Yeah, that. That the improvisate. I, I want to laser in on that word. I focus in on that word. Improvisation. It's something that it, you and I are both musicians, and one of the things arguably. That I've always love to do. Arguably, oh, we don't have to argue it. We know we are. Um, I love improvisation because it's it, it's that musical experimentation equivalent where try this and you see how this lands and you play this little riff and then all of a sudden a song emerges from it. It's also and why a lot of uh, improv comedians get into customer education and similar disciplines. I Yeah, comedy. Well, that way of thinking, Adam, is is really interesting. Uh, and for customer educators in, in particular, I think this is relevant. You know, this is not a perfect track by any means that they did. But for a lot of people, this is Bowie that they know. Yeah, this is like the song that a lot of people know, right? So, right. so let's yeah. let's tear this apart a little bit more. Yeah. Well, you know, this is kind of like using an instructional design methodology. <laughs> this might be stretch of the episode, but bear with me. <laughs> how how is under pressure like using Sam versus Addy? Well, here here's how. They didn't sit down and, and plan this this to be a masterwork. This was like a, a throwaway Queen song. Um, it was a jam session and they, they essentially prototyped their way into a pop song and they didn't sit on it forever, cleaning up all the rough edges. Mm-hmm. They didn't replace all the random scat singing with, uh, with the actual lyrics. And yet this was still an incredibly powerful song. Why Dave? Why is it like that? Well, let's, let's think about a couple of lessons we can learn from that. Number number two here, and we said progress and perfection. That's not a perfect track. Number number two, the lesson that we can take away is focus on the bright spots. You know, one of the reasons we think Under Pressure is successful commercially and artistically is because 
Bowie and Queen just focused on those bright spots, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't understate this like or overstate this. Most most of the song is lyrical nonsense. Just, it's gibberish. Yeah, it's gibberish. It's, it's at best, you could say it's kind of like gesturing at themes instead of actually communicating anything specific <laughs> and direct. But it, it does snap into focus in, in a few really meaningful ways. One is during that really rousing Bowie chorus. It's the terror of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friends screaming, let me out. Pray tomorrow gets me higher. Pressure on people, people on streets. Sorry, everyone. I didn't do my vocal warm ups, but that's that's the Bowie chorus. <laughs> you know, that's but that Adam is about as direct as the song ever manages to get even though it never really comes out and states it seems directly it's essentially relying on this one part of the song to do 80 percent of that communication uh, now that's pretty those are pretty deep lines terror of knowing what the world is about you know that's come full circle in 2020 once again it, these lines are powerful under you know we're we're constantly a pressure cooker of social change really neat stuff yeah, and, it, and it, so it kind of imbues meaning on on the rest of the song around mm-hmm. it, which you know again is is pretty pretty indirect with what it's getting at, and arguably um, arguably a little nonsensical. <laughs> and, and similarly, like not all the instrumentation or mixing on the song is incredible. Um, <laughs> here, I, here I am critiquing one of the uh, one of the classics of all time, but most most of <laughs> forty the years too late. <laughs> most of the song's hook is is rooted in that killer baseline. So when you think of this song, often that's the first thing you're going to think about. Boom, 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 ba dum dum You sang it earlier, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bright spot that carries a ton of weight for the rest of the song, and they correctly highlight it and, and bring it to the forefront. So listen to the amount of time. Like Go back and listen to that song uh, after, you're, after you listen to this podcast. Don't turn us off. <laughs> or, or you can. <laughs> or if you pause, can. and you can listen yeah, to pause. the side. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, so if you listen to that song, <laughs> listen to the amount of time that the only instrument playing is the bass. This is unique and I think counterintuitive for a pop song, especially at the time. They knew where to focus the listener's attention. Uh, wow. Just reflecting on that, you don't really think about that. It's it's that white space, right? It's filling the filling the void with just one voice. And then the whole song kind of branches off from that. Customer education programs are kind of like this too, Adam. You know, especially I, and, and I really like the early phase part because it's so exciting, exhilarating, and adrenaline pumping because you don't have time to do it all. You're not going to be doing everything well, but there's some bright spots in your program. There's things your customers are really going to respond to well, and they're going to want more of, or things that, that want or things that will make your program special. And we argue that... Okay, let, let's let's really frame it. And those of you that are listening right now are probably those of you who are in this trench as, as well as we are. You know, you don't spend that time trying to shore up everything, all of your weaknesses, or try to get everything up to the level of a mature program. Focus first on that dum 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 da da dum dum that bright spot. Make it brighter. Make it stand out. You you typically won't have the resources in an early stage program to to fix everything, right? Yeah, but you're you're going to get a lot of pressure from your <laughs> execs to, you know, to do everything. Go go do a webinar, go do uh go make an online academy. Uh, are yeah. we doing any sort of like nurture emails and promotion? Like there's a million tempting things to do as an early stage customer education program. And you're going to look around and you're going to see all these more mature programs doing these things super well. Um, You can't do it typically with the resources you have as a very early stage program. So you kind of have a decision to make with limited resources. Do you a uh, put a few of those chips into everything? And so you're doing a bunch of things mediocre or do you B um, really invest in a couple of bright spots? Like do a couple of things really, really, really well. Yeah. Cool. Can I riff on an example of this? Yeah, let's hear it. So, you know, we, let's talk about, you know, what are bright spots? You know, and I'm going to give you a practical example while I talk about it. So a bright spot could be a unique approach to f- facilitation interactivity, like a cool interface for displaying a learning path, distinct mm-hmm. nursery emails, you know, stuff like that. You, you, you know, using your brand voice, trying to, to make sure you com- you get everybody to complete the stuff. Each program has kind of a different nuance or a different one. So 
what pops into my mind immediately was work that I did at Azuqua and realize that if, if I were to tell you what Azuqua is, you know, apart from a funny name, you know, it's a combination of Azure and Aqua, actually, is how we got there. But a funny, that, a funny name that uh, <laughs> is impossible to transcribe. Yeah. Um, that that what's what was really compelling, the bright spot there was that we. Um, what the bright spot there was that we had a platform that was an integration platform that connected other systems, kind of like Zapier, or if this, then that. So what I realized pretty quickly is that, hey, I could actually use this platform itself to teach the platform. It was very meta. Similar at the time I spent at Gainsight, I actually used the platform itself to do the teaching in a novel and, and, and way that when you get done doing the exercises, you're like, wow, I actually built this and I actually understand it. Yeah, so, we do similar at Slack in terms of using it for facilitation of, of actual uh, education sessions. Absolutely, because you're in the session using the product and it, it makes it more real. You're actually engaging it with it in a, not a, a goofy or you know, obscure way. You're using it in a practical way. And that's the bright spot, right? Yeah. Or, or at Optimizely, for instance, uh, one of the bright spots uh, was really around search discoverability. So, you know, there were a lot of things behind the scenes when we created Optiverse that, uh, you know, were not perfect by any means. But we did have uh, a few key areas of investment that I think got a lot of the um, a lot of the work done, and one of them was putting a federated search uh, mm-hmm. across that whole site, so that we just we just laser focused on making discoverability as good as possible, and that was something that we really got to continue investing in and just making that better over time. Right. The more people I mean, that came to the program, the more people that came to the resources, then the more traction we got, which was more of a reason for us to continue investing in it, and the more reason we we saw you know results over time. Right. So you started somewhere and you grew it and you expanded. It didn't mean that that was the focus of everything throughout time, but it's a bright spot. And as you're developing, and you're growing. That allowed you to as it's kind of like a stepping stone to other things, and you can evolve your program. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Okay, that was that was the bright spots. I think there's a couple more lessons here. One is just on the power of collaboration. So, mm-hmm. you know, we could have picked any song from mid-career Bowie. Um, one reason <laughs> we like this song from a customer education perspective is that, well, it's it's not truly a Bowie song. It's a collaboration. It's a collaboration, yeah. So the original jam was written by Queen's drummer, Roger Taylor. Um, then the bassist, John Deacon, added that killer, killer bass line. Mm. Uh, then you've got Freddie Mercury and Brian May, who are the two more well-known members of, of Queen. Um this would probably be a, a third tier Queen song without the addition of Bowie as a collaborator. Right. This was a throwaway jam. You can you can actually listen to the original jam before they turned it into Under Pressure, and and I think this does show us the power of collaboration, right? Like Bowie and, and Mercury certainly oh my had God, yeah. disagreements in the studio, but together they created something really powerful, and the song actually has a five way writing credit as a result. Wow. Well, that's cool, and. <sighs> I think this is one one of the most serious things that we could pull out of our fun episode, Adam. I, I, I like to focus on collaboration because our jobs, our jobs in customer education as customer education practitioners and leaders is that we're often not working in isolation. Emphasis on not. We're collaborating with others and using others' strengths to get better work done. And that means... And this is really hard for me too. So I'm going to be completely transparent today. This often means we're not going to get our pure vision, pure in air quotes, that, you know, we're going to have to make compromises to work with others. In the end, we're going to build something better together. So let me expand on this just a little bit. I tend to get frustrated sometimes because you come into a new environment, you're starting to set up a program, you know the things that are going to work, right, Adam? You know that's what you got. No, I, I disagree. <laughs> I no, dis- you do. Yeah, when I when I walk into a new organization, I have I have kind of like okay, I don't want to. Like, I was going to say hypothesis, but that's, that's a little annoying. Hmm? Like <laughs> I have I have instincts and impulses and things that I want to test and things that I want to um, explore. I know what's worked for me in past uh-huh. environments, but like when I join a new organization. I'm actually usually kind of like spending a lot of time sniffing out 
what do I think is going to work here and why? Um, what will work contextually with this organization, with these players, with this audience, with these learners, with this product? Um, I don't. I don't know that I often walk into a new job or a new organization with like a completely pure vision of exactly how I want to do or how I want to, uh, uh, you know, what I want to do or how I want to do it. And in fact, I think that gets people in trouble sometimes when they come from a big mature organization, mm. for instance, and then they walk into a startup and then they're like, I'm just going to take my playbook from this big organization, but I don't have the the same resources. I don't have the same product. I don't have the same audience. I don't have the same infrastructure. I think that's usually actually kind of a, a recipe for, uh, for struggle. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I think yeah. you and I maybe have similarities and differences in our approach. Maybe, but maybe not. Because as you, you started talking through this, I do do the same thing that you do. You come in and you learn and you spend the first, I don't know, weeks, months, figuring out a, an environment. But what I'm speaking to, and I'm, I, I am slightly arguing with you, but, sl- but pretty much not. What I'm speaking to is that after time when you've kind of formulated an approach and that the frustration I tend to get is that, okay, we've, we know generally what's going to work here. We have a pretty good inkling at what work, but it's that trying to sell that vision is where it's hard. It's, it's hard because sometimes people go, well, I've lost trust in, you know, a, a former person's ability to have done an education program. Cause I've seen yeah. that before I've come it in. It makes me think it. of that. There's like, there's a great Melissa Milloway article that she put on her, uh, her LinkedIn mm-hmm. series, this side up where she talked about, this is how, this is how companies lose faith in their L and D teams. And she talks about all the decisions that you can kind of make that will, that will lead to that exact environment, that loss of trust. And someone has to walk in and kind of yeah. rebuild that trust over time. Yeah, and I, I, some of the some of the best experiences I've had, even recently, are when I just go, "Hey, I'll role play it out with you, Adam." Hey, Adam, you know what? You know, you're in this other team, but you know what? I really value you, and I, I, I and we need to collaborate together to do this thing. And you, you, you basically flip the table a little bit, and you open your up your heart and your head, and then you start talking about how you can collaborate on a vision together right? This has actually kind of been a challenge for me in several different roles when you're working with a customer success team, because a lot of the time such such teams are so busy and they can only see what's in front of them because you're dealing with churn and you're helping customers and, and you're not really in that long-term strategic state all the time. So opening up and getting collaborative with other people and say, look, here, here's one of my favorite things to say. Yeah, I have instructional designers and I have people that can create a video, but you know what? Hey, Adam, why don't you record this part? of this video, because then it'll be in your voice and you're the person that matters. So you're opening up space and you're working with other teams. And if you if you get out of your own head where you develop a vision and execute on the vision and you open it up and understand what others or others need and how to collaborate with them, it actually becomes quite more powerful. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you, Dave. I think you and I are, are kind of thinking along similar lines here. I know that earlier in my career, I would do things like kind of come in and, and say, hey, look, I know instructional design. Um, I know how learning works. So I'm going to use the tools available to me. And I am going to design this, you know, big curriculum and <laughs> make sure that everything is aligned and blah, 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 blah. Well, okay, you know, you're walking into an early stage company proposing to spend months developing a curriculum when they need education now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not necessarily a great way. Even if even if you have this great pure vision of how things should work from an evidence-based learning perspective, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get to execute that in reality or that it's going to be effective in reality just because it's rooted in, in best practices. So. Yeah, and I, I, think, I, think I think that's... We're talking on the same page. We are talking on the same page, but for everybody listening, I think this is really important. It's really important. You have to You have to be a team. And I think it's there's a really easy temptation, kind of like what you're saying. You come in and just throw down a playbook. You cannot. We're not at that stage. We're learning. We're growing. And in our space, it just doesn't play well with that. So we can talk about that forever. Let's 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 continue here. <laughs> well, we have one little little bonus here because uh, this song kind of has uh, an interesting coda. Ooh. So the epilogue to to this story is pretty famous, which is that this song was sampled by Vanilla Ice without permission. Uh huh. For the song Ice Ice Baby, uh, which I'm sure I heard Ice Ice Baby before I ever heard Under Pressure. So that's where I knew that that baseline from. And it became the center of a famous lawsuit. There's that really uh, famous video 
of Vanilla Ice denying it by pointing out that there is a one note difference between the riffs, which means that his version was apparently completely different. Uh, I have the quote. He goes, it's totally different. It's a rap song. Ding, 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 a ding, ding. That's the way theirs goes. Our version goes, ding, 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 a ding, 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 a ding, ding. That little itty bitty change, it's not the same. And he's just got this like, huh. this this grin. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, justice did prevail. Bowie and Queen got songwriting credits, right? They they did. But I guess the lesson here is that if you put something into the market, there will always be someone trying to knock you off and deny that that's what they're doing in the process. Yeah. But in customer education, we don't really get to the point where we're lobbying legal threats at one another. Uh, copyright law doesn't really work the same. Uh, and many of the ideas that we come up with in our programs can't really be copyrighted and, and frankly shouldn't. Some of the best ideas iterate on previous ones or, you know, kind of Dave, like you said, like people start by uh, copying what they like in other programs or what works well in, oh, yeah. in other programs a lot of the time. So there's, there's a fine line. Um, but, there, there, you know, if you do something successful, there will be imitators. Right. And that's a... Um and that's something that you should aspire to, right? If somebody's imitating your program, it means you, you did a pretty darn good job at it. And it's it's something that we should add to our, our backlog or our, our catalog of good techniques. I don't know. <laughs> However you yeah, want to say I that. Mean, for, for me, it's, it's, you know, better to keep innovating your own program and your own ideas. Don't worry too much about the people trying to knock them off. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, Maybe they're well within their rights a lot of the time to take and improve upon the ideas that that you've put into the world. Like you shouldn't concern yourself with that. You should concern yourself with building your best program, the best program for your audience. Totally. Okay, so shall we skip ahead? Yes, Dave. I think we're we're now in the uh, electronic period that Ooh. you so love. Indeed, nineteen ninety five ish. Somewhere around mm-hmm. then. Okay, l- l- let's get into this. So we're skipping ahead to 1995. We're solidly in late career Bowie. Now, with the exception of Let's Dance and Labyrinths, uh, Bowie's 80s are generally unremembered. And that carried on into the 90s as well. But while Bowie's 80s were largely unremarkable and filled with that bland era appropriate pop he called them, and this is his words, not ours, his Phil Collins years. Um, Shots fired. Yeah. And with, I don't know. I like Phil Collins, too. There's some, <laughs> something good to be said about that. But his, I guess he didn't. <laughs> I guess he didn't. I like uh, I liked the, the soundtrack to Tarzan. It was good. It, Collins has got some better stuff. Anyway, back to Bowie. His mid-90s and onward were a lot more experimental. So what's our first lessons from this, Adam? Well, I think there's a lesson here about experimentation, especially when you don't have to. So by this point, he could have easily become a nostalgia act. He had a a gigantic, gigantic catalog of hits Mm. from 1967 to 1983, or 1969, actually. Space Oddity, there was nothing on that first Bowie album that could even remotely be considered a hit. Um, But, you know, from 69 to 83 or so, he could have relied on those hits. And he could have made money playing them on tour, Mm -hmm. selling merch, uh, really coasting on his success. He had 18 studio albums by this point. That's crazy. 18 albums. That's so much work. Yeah, so but work. he didn't. He didn't choose to just become a nostalgia act, did he, Dave? No. Um, instead, he chose to ignore most of that, just push it away, trying to stay cutting edge and experimental, embracing new genres that were coming out of the time, like industrial, like drum and bass, and incorporating those into his own signature style. For yeah. example, let's let's give you let's give you a good one. Thematically, this album had a, had much in common with his early 70s work. So we go back to Ziggy Stardust. We go back to Diamond Dogs and, and Yeah, even though the sound I'll, I'll is very with different, this one. the themes are the same. The sound's different. The themes are the same. Now we're talking about the album Outside, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast, also marked a return to his collaboration with Brian Eno and consequently saw him experimenting more with structure, with lyrics and forms. Outside is, uh, let's put this more of a canonical description, a cryptic dystopian neo-noir concept album influenced by outsider art. 
Wow. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack wow. there. If you, I mean, if you hear him talking about this album in interviews, like this is actually some of the most pretentious Bowie you will ever hear. <laughs> like clearly he's still thinking about this stuff really, really, really hard. And we can't emphasize enough how much he did not need to do any of this at this point in his career. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But in a way, it's a reflection of his urge to continue experimenting. And the fact that he started working with Brian Eno again, uh, you know, that helped him, that helped challenge him to, to think differently. Yeah, you know, and this is something that, that really drives me, Adam. I admit that I've, like you, you know, tackled three different customer education roles in the past, I don't know how many years, recent, recent career. And I've learned one thing, and this comes up at work pretty much all the time. What you, what got you here won't get you there, right? Mm-hmm. For us, we live... That's exactly what we were talking about before, right? When we talked exactly. about coming into a new organization. You're coming into a new organization, learning new things. For us, we also lived in what I would like to say is kind of an undefined environment. And we get caught up in this fluidity of a rapidly growing and scaling business, sometimes unicorns like the ones who we're at now and sure i could have stayed put in two roles ago at gainsight for example you could have stayed at optimizely but we both know and and i like to believe we have a lot more work to do we've got to explore and try new things because this is the infancy of this this creative work you know the work we're doing customer education it's a new field yeah i mean some of that is privilege right like we we have the privilege of being able to, you know, move from one role to the other or one job to the other, one company to the other. Uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I, I consider myself to have gotten lucky with some of the roles earlier in my career that put me in a position to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that you actually have to change companies or, or change jobs to True. embrace this either. Like you can find these opportunities within your current role, within your current scope, even um, there are always new things to do or new ways to do those things. Yeah. So I think, I think you're right. What got you here won't get you there. It's kind of a, when I think of that, I think about don't coast in whatever role you're in. Don't just like sit Mm -hmm. back and assume that you've got it. Like keep looking for the next thing. Keep thinking about what can make your program better, uh, more resonant with customers. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you and I think about that differently, but that's that's how I interpret that one. We might think about it differently, but I think the end result is the same. That something impels us to continue to not coast, to continue to innovate and to learn what will work. And, and we were basically scientists in in a way in this you, field. You are you are. You are. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'll call myself a scientist. I'll get hey, you work for C Lab, so <laughs> <laughs> True. That's true. I've got my got my C Lab badge. <laughs> Yeah, get you a lab coat. <laughs> okay, Dave, want to take us into the next lesson? <laughs> yeah, let's get let's talk about lesson two here with this new this whole new genre here, new new theme in his life. It's you've got to have a plan. So let's use our traditional close reading again, Adam, of the lyrics. And I love I'll, it. I'll just read it out. Bum bum beat up it. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> you've got to have a th- scheme. You've got to have a plan in the world of today for tomorrow's man. Okay, let that sit in. Sounds a lot more melodic. Got to have a scheme. Got to have a plan. You know, you've, you've heard that before. Um, I've heard, yeah. No Control? I've heard the song. No Control. No Control. It's a really good song. It's a really meaty song. And, you know, at the end, of, here's end of year. This is the last day of the year. We're recording and... We're reflecting on that broader perspective of our craft. Some have said Bowie was grappling with Gnosticism in in some of these lyrics, and you know I was doing a little bit more research and thinking about it. it. This this theme of free will versus predestination keeps coming up, and it's even coming up in I don't know if you Battlestar Galactica. I think was the one that came up. There's a lot of genres yeah. of music and movies, and people keep coming back to this. Well, Station um, to Station, my favorite album, is yeah deals heavily in themes of Gnosticism, too. Yeah, I, I read a lot about Gnosticism when I was pretty young. Uh, Philip K. Dick was actually one of my favorite authors in speculative fiction, sci-fi. You know, he did Blade Runner, et cetera. But that was a, a recurrent theme for him as well. And 
you know, the thing about this, okay, what, what is really going on? You know, do I actually have free will or is my life have been predetermined in some concept? That's, that's a, that's something we got to grapple with a lot. Now, if we pin that in customer education, let, let's come back to this guy. You've got to have a plan. Yeah, this seems <laughs> like a stretch. Realm. Ooh, yeah. Second stretch of the episode. This is, this is the silver medal stretch. It's the silver medal stretch. You've got to have a scheme. You've got to have a plan in your day to day, right? You've got to know where you're going. If I, if I reduce this down and, and it's something I think about constantly and I experience constantly is other people wanting certain things that they think a customer needs. This is not me. This is other people in my organization say, well, hey, we need this certification program or we need to have this module. We need to do this thing. We need to build this course. Okay, great. Let's talk about it. But to me, we have to work from some kind of operational brand. Otherwise, we're going to constantly get distracted by the things that we could be doing, right? Um, More importantly, you might actually fail that customer who who commonly, let's think about you start off in a new organization and you are that first person. A new career in a new town? Right. What are you going to do? Well, the first thing that usually I notice is the customer needs something right away. So if you're not thinking about the customer and instead you go, oh, hey, let's do a waterfall type project plan and let's build out this massive program and here's all the pieces for it. And it's going to take me five years. That's not going to help the customer. So uh, am no, I? I'm, well, great, because they're asking you for a thing. They're asking you for a format. They're not necessarily asking you. Right. They're, they're not, you need to learn what the problem is that you're solving for. You need to learn what the problem was. You know, some, of, some of my recent experiences, Adam, have been, hey, you know, we, have, we don't have on-demand material. Okay, let's do that. But we have to do it in concert with other things. Like we have to actually continue to do live training. We actually have to go to this event. But how do we, how do we expedite? Now, if, if I said yes to every little thing that keeps coming up, I'm not going to get this done. So what I'm saying here is that the plan – Going back to some of the other things we say, you have to be flexible. You have to be collaborative. You can incorporate all that in there. But if you don't have a plan, what will immediately happen in our field is you're going to get overwhelmed by so many requests of other people that you will lose sight of the goal. And that's important to note. I agree. I agree. So it's another lesson we can learn. Well, I think this is the last lesson from uh, the song No Control and maybe a little bit broader from this, this point in Bowie's career. Uh, this lesson is about embracing technology for what it can bring to your art. And we do think that customer education is an art. It, it requires a creative impulse to do well. And so yeah. Bowie on this album, he used quite a bit of technology. Have you ever noticed, Dave, on this album that the lyrics seem a little uh, chopped and screwed? Yeah, it's it's sometimes jarring. Like, well, that's weird. I, okay. That transposed or that moved here, and it's interesting to see how does how was that done? Well, so again, this is the uh, mid '90s, so he didn't have a lot of super fancy equipment to do this, but he had a piece of software called the Verbisizer on his uh, on his Apple Apple II or whatever it was that he was using at the time, <laughs> which was a digital version of a technique he'd used in the past, like in his Berlin era. Uh, where he would cut up the lyrics he wrote and mix them around and recombine them to make them sound more unexpected and esoteric. Uh, but this was a digital version of that that helped him achieve the same result while working more quickly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And you know what's so cool about that is I've gotten into music again. You know, I pulled out my saxophone since been sitting in the closet for years, and I'm trying to learn Ableton Live, which is a digital audio work workbench, which really complicated. It's as complicated as any of the software that we do, and trying to learn it is is interesting. But it allows you to mix and add, and basically you have this whole palette, a canvas of so many different kinds of things that you could chop things up and move them around and play with beats and rhythms and add tracks as you go. In a, in a simpler level, something that I do regularly is use Audacity. You could be using Camtasia mm-hmm. and anything. You know, We're doing this all the time. You may be very well remixing content that you have. For example, this podcast, I might take a cold open, which is a piece of something that we're talking about in the actual podcast, lift it out, copy it, put it in the front of the podcast. Maybe I'll mix some things up. Maybe I'll chop a piece out. So... Yeah, this is really cool. And it was quite advanced for him to be doing that at that time. 
Yeah, I mean, speaking of him being advanced for his time, this is the period of his career where he really embraced technology, I think, as the future. Yeah. We talked about some of these same themes in the Radiohead episode, which, yeah, you know, their their album OK Computer was also around this time. Mm -hmm. Everyone was really thinking about what this new rise of technology meant for the future, especially computers, the internet. But this is something that we're called to do day in, day out in our jobs. We constantly have the opportunity to think about how new technologies can shape the ways we work. So think about it. Even this year, 2020, right? Those who had already embraced online learning had such a strong leg up on those who were still running their programs in person in classrooms. They had to adapt so much to bring their their programs online, whereas people who already were embracing online technologies just got to evolve and iterate and uh, Hmm. really move that much quicker. Yeah. Let let me add in, I want to add in some flavor to this, Adam, because this is relevant to the job that we're doing right now. Even at Outreach, the, the, the phenomenal thing during the time of COVID-19 is I had a big, I had half of my team doing live training and traveling a lot. Um, and, you know, it's a stupendous amount of work. Now with COVID, we couldn't do that. So I saw trainers immediately kind of freaking out a little bit. You know, they didn't need to, but naturally, if you were doing some kind of job and that dramatically changed, you would freak out a little bit as well. But what I've seen is that many of them are asking, hey, you know, I do this all the time. Can I convert this into an on-demand? And what tools do we have? And how can I do this better? And what other things can I do to enhance the kinds of training that I do on a day-to-day basis? Those questions are, are now popping up because, you know, we have a little of extra time, but we're exploring the technologies that are now just exploding around on online learning and it's pretty yeah. fabulous and so I, I yeah i think really embracing the tools that you have available to you approaching with i think cautious optimism mm-hmm. um what new technologies are available some of them are are going to turn out to be completely irrelevant to customer education uh you know i don't think i don't think anyone in our field right now is asking like hey what can parlor do for for customer education <laughs> <laughs> this is the second episode where we bag, bagged on Parler. But, uh, oh, goodness. Right? Like, you know, use technologies for what they're worth. But I think being health, healthily optimistic uh, about what these technologies can bring is, you know, it opens up new avenues cre- uh, creatively. So like Bowie at this time, uh, did you know he launched his own ISP called BowieNet, internet, internet service provider? It was kind of a proto-social That's network. Crazy. Yeah. And users could share is, their Is that like the whole Earth electronic link? Do you, do you recall that, that, um, who was it? Um, Billy Idol had a lot to do with the whole earth electronic link early, early days of the internet as well. well I feel like we wouldn't have a Billy Idol without David Bowie. So I'm going to give Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Billy Idol fans, though we might not do a Billy Idol episode. Um, yeah, like, and he was, he was actually, he was on there. He was on the, the forum. Uh, I think his, his, uh, username was sailor. I could be wrong about that. Hmm. Uh, he launched his own online bank, Bowie bank at a time when just That's over 11 cool. million people used online banking. So he's kind of ahead of the curve there. Uh, and he was also one of the first major artists to release a new album online. So his 1999 album hours was kind of the precursor to Radioheads and rainbows. Mm-hmm. We talked about the digital distribution method for that one in our, our Radiohead episode, uh, it was very similar in the way that it was released for download. And this is 1999 when people are just getting their heads around MP3s. So it's kind of interesting, Dave, like around the same time, he did an interview with the BBC that has since gone viral uh, in the decades afterwards for just how prescient it was. He mm-hmm. shows that he's so forward thinking that he nails how dramatically the internet will shape the way that artists work and that people will connect with each other. So uh, I, let's do a dramatic reading Um a portion okay. of this interview, just to give you a taste. How about that? So Let's do it. So Bowie is sitting with, uh, uh, I think his name's David Paxman from the BBC, and he says, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet's going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool, though, isn't it? No, it's not. No, it's an alien life form. <laughs> Is there life on Mars? Yes, it's just landed there. But it's simply a different delivery system there. You're arguing about something more profound. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about the actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment, where the interplay between the user and provider will be so in simpatico, it's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. But it's happening in every form. It's happening in visual art. The breakthroughs at the early part of the century with people like Duchamp, who are so prescient in what they were doing and putting down. The idea that 
the piece of work is not finished until the piece of work... I'm sorry, I can't do my Bowie accent. Uh, <laughs> until the audience comes to it and adds their own interpretation. And the piece of art is about the gray space in the middle. The gray space in the middle is what the 21st century is going to be about. Wow. Wow, that's that's incredibly prescient. Not only, not only do you realize that the internet would essentially become or consume physical media, but that was what made the internet so revolutionary. Our ability to create meaning in together in that gray space, as he calls it. And, well, let's think about it. If we think about, of customer educators as artists, which, again, we do think they are, then our work is only as good and relevant as the meaning it creates for our learners. So that's a good call to action, right? Listen to our learners, build communities with them, engage with them, and not just build in a silo and arbitrarily follow processes. Yeah, your learning design um, is only as effective as, as when it meets the learner. Yeah. I really love this introduction of art into our craft. Uh, you know, as I, I, I'm not going to argue with this, but I'm going to say that we're both musicians or we've had musical <laughs> musical training. There's always been something that I couldn't, Adam, quite put my finger on about our craft of customer education. And and again, I'm, I'm kind of going back and saying I, when I when I dropped into this, I was more kind of like a you know, a project manager and trying to build out a program, although I'd had a lot of educational background, uh, you can go by the book. You, know, you wrote the book, right? The first one in customer education. Um, and there follow are other good books you can go by too. Practices. Yeah. We've got them on our, our reading list. Um, and you can follow great standards for trainings, but yet we don't do that. We, we have to get a lot more creative. We have to be pushing the envelope. This field of customer education is evolving before our eyes. So what I'm saying here about this whole thing is that you know we've got to we've got to be creative. I, I agree, okay. and I think that if uh, if Mr. Bowie were a customer educator, he would probably agree. So Dave, so <laughs> many great lessons to learn from his career. I, we could do a whole separate Bowie episode and probably come up with as many uh, as many conclusions as as we did this time, but. Um, <laughs> You know, given given all the lyrics he's written, all the things he did in his career, we have so many lessons to learn from him. I, I love doing these episodes with you, Dave. But for now, I will say, rest in peace, Mr. Bowie. And we hope you're out there in the cosmos still doing what you love. Indeed. So with this episode, we wrap up an intense, intense and challenging year. Goodbye and good riddance 2020. And here's hoping for a better 2021 but let's talk a bit about what's ahead for us, Adam, and share with the audience about our plans for 2021. Where is the mobile C-Lab unit headed? Uh, last year, we began our CEO series where we talked to C-level execs in the learning space. And those episodes were really well received. Mm -hmm. In fact, they, they got some of the most listeners of, of uh, any episode that we did in the past year. And we have a few more of those planned for this year. But what else, Dave? Well, we're going to be expanding our reach just a bit. And... What we're going to do is talk to some venture capitalists to invest in this space, which that's really cool. So I'm excited for hearing these uh, these episodes. Adam, you've recorded one. So yeah, we've uh, got that one recorded already. I'm super excited to release it. Look forward to come out really soon, as well as some of our friends in customer success in that community as well. Uh, something I think is really important for us to share with you. And for those of you who are listening, if you're in customer success right now, help us elevate this message. If you're not, share the word, spread the word, you know, tag um, pound customer success in some of your reposts and reshares. This field is in increasingly important to us because customer success quite often sponsors customer education teams. And we want to learn a lot more about what's important to them and how they think about customer education. Yeah. And finally, uh, this past year, we released a customer education manifesto with Yay. six key principles for modern customer education teams. Uh, you can go to customer.education and check that out. We are honored to see that some folks, Dave, you, you told me a few examples too. People are incorporating mm -hmm. these principles into their own practices, right? Yeah, it, it blow. It's it's so it's an honor. <laughs> don't don't have to do it quite literally, but I'm actually really impressed to see that because it means, hey, this is something that we've refined and we've worked on, and it's a model and it's good to start with. So 
kudos. Yeah. And, and, you know, we think one thing that we can continue to do on this show is to really elevate the voice of practitioners and, and customer education leaders who are doing well, uh, really, really excelling in their programs. And so we want to feature teams who are incorporating these principles from the manifesto into their practice. And we'd like to do uh, an episode uh, each of which would feature a team that embodies each of the six principles. So if you feel like your program is one of those uh, and you want to be highlighted, please reach out to us on LinkedIn or, or on our website, customer.education, through the contact form. We'd really love to hear from you, and we'd love to feature programs that are doing each of the six principles really well. Absolutely. That'll be a lot of fun. We, lo- we look forward to hearing from you, so reach out to us. So let's take this home. Adam, uh, for for those of you on the internet, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Avramescu. We've got our C-Lab website. There's plenty of ways. Mm -hmm. How about you, Dave? Plenty of ways. Yep, I'm at Dave Darrington on Twitter, and I'm pretty active in LinkedIn. So reach out to us there. And like Adam said, use our contact form. We look at that periodically as well. So let's close this out. Uh, special thanks to Alan Coda for our amazing theme music. And if this helped you out, you can help us out again by subscribing in your podcatcher of choice or leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. Those two things help expose our podcast to other people. In particular, we really appreciate those of you who reshare our posts. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. Go out and educate, experiment and find your people. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.